0: Hear now the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. If your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Second reading comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Finally, again, from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father, the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Abba, we pray to you now in confidence, in trust, in full conviction. We pray that your Spirit, the same Spirit that anointed your Son for His mission and ministry, would now... Fall and rest upon us, us, even as we share in His life, that we might hear Your Word, that we might respond to You, that our, our minds, yes, would be filled, but our hearts would be as well, and our hands and feet would be moved to service in this world, that we might show ourselves children of the Father. And it's in Your Son, Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Religion is a crutch. God is simply an idea, a wish people make to explain the world so that it will somehow, some way, make sense. That's, of course, according to folks like Sigmund Freud, and uh, he went on to say that this idea of God, this, this this idea that some of us have of the old bearded man in the sky, do you know where that image comes from? The book of Revelation. So, but he would say this, this idea of the old bearded man in the sky is someone that we have just made up a father figure, no doubt, who is powerful. He can do what he wants. He helps us make sense of the world and who has promises to take care of us. He's a father that we have just made up and projected out into the world based on our own anxieties our own fears, our own psychological needs. Further, according to folks like Frederick Nietzsche, God the Father is someone we identify with who gives us comfort because He will punish our enemies. He's someone who is powerful, someone to whom we can appeal to threaten others, to coerce them and to control them. For our purposes. We can make threats. You do that. You're going to go to hell. God's going to judge you. And so that we can manipulate people into doing what we want. This is part of what he meant when he was talking about slave morality. And speaking of threatening and trolling others with religion. This whole business, by the way, of calling God Father. Isn't that just one more way that men... In particular have gamed the system because if God is a dude, then dudes are more similar to God and God's get to and dudes get to set the agenda in religion and the world. All right, so because I'm a little bit nerdy and bookish, I've quoted these old dead European guys, these old European dudes. Uh, but you don't have to read philosophy or psychology to know that the, 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 the criticisms or the descriptions that I've given out here have some traction in the world, in our culture, maybe even in our heads, if we're a little bit honest. Because you can see, at least out in the culture, from shows like Toy Story all the way to Game of Thrones, they highlight this, that the world is not, in fact, enchanted, at least morally, And power. Is what religion is really about. And fathers, especially a heavenly father, is not there, is not to be trusted. So what are we, as those who are about to confess again for the third week in the row, uh, what are we to make of God being called father in scripture and creed? And when we confess that we believe in God, the father, what do we mean? And what frankly difference does it make that could be a whole series in and of itself but there's just two things that i want to highlight for us this morning and i'm going to tell you what they are the first one is this they're points if you do points in a sermon take notes first one is this we believe god the father when we say we believe in god the father we believe that god the father is personal and parental in his care and that he is reliable in his actions in the world That's what we're confessing when we call God Father. That's something about Him. And the second one is this. We believe that God the Father gives us what exactly Jesus has in relation to God. Privilege and prayer. So that's where we're going over these next few minutes. So let's think about that first idea, that first bit of theology from the Bible. That God the Father is a personal and stable parent. So when the first Christians, the early Christians, started sorting out what it means that God is Father, they understood Jesus to mean, and by the way, Jesus is our chief source for understanding God as Father. Not the only source, but our chief source for understanding Father, God as Father. These early Christians understood that term to mean this. That whatever else it means, it means that God is not N O T, not like the other gods competing for your allegiance. Because think about it, the the Bible was written in the Creed not too long afterwards in first century Roman context, in which their culturally, religiously, and otherwise, their influence had extended throughout uh, the, the world at that point, or at least that part of the world where Christianity emerged. And the Romans had plenty of gods who, in fact, were fathers too jupiter neptune apollo the list goes on almost seemingly infinitely and these gods were passionate they were lusty and they were unpredictable and they would sometimes do what they would come to earth they would take on a human form they would take wives or maybe they weren't even their wives who would give them children and then they would do things like get angry they'd change their mind about things they would turn against the people they said they were friends with And honestly, these gods didn't really seem to be anything but magnified, blown-up versions of people and all of their mood swings and indecisiveness and even weirdness. So, In fact, the the early Christians wanted to be clear that when we said, Father, we weren't projecting up from our own experience about God. We weren't projecting up some nitty-gritty soap opera wish about God. But instead... We were hearing what had been revealed about God from Jesus and the prophets and the writings and even the Torah. One later theologian, not an early one, said this. True and proper fatherhood resides in God. And from this fatherhood of God, what we know as fatherhood among us men is derived. The divine fatherhood is the primal source of all natural fatherhood. That was this cat named Carl Bart who said that. Uh, He's a fairly recent theologian. And what's he saying? In other words, we don't look at fathers out in the world to figure out what God is like. We look at God to understand what parents are or what they're supposed to be. And y'all, for some of you, that might be the most important thing I say here this morning. Because you might be coming from a wretched, a horrible, an incomplete, fill-in-the-adjective experience with your own father. And you're wondering, can I, looking at this father, trust what's supposed to be the capital F father? We don't reason up from that experience. Instead, we listen, we receive down what God has said. But what else is the difference between God, the true God of Israel, and the pagans and the pagan gods? Well... The pagan gods were many, but the God of Israel is one. Pagan gods fly into a rage. They lose their mind. They lose their temper. But the true God is unchangeable. And that means he's totally reliable. He's not fickle. Pagan gods, obviously, I won't even quote some of these stories. It really is kind of like a Game of Thrones situation. The the, the pagan gods can be inflamed with lust, but the true God seeks the good of humanity without any self-interest. And the pagan gods just arbitrarily turn against humans, even the humans they had pledged their loyalty to. But the true God, the true Father, consistently seeks our good. And this is why the early Christians were careful to point out that while pagan, and, and please hear me carefully on this, that while the pagan gods were male and female, the true God transcends gender transcends the body. So, for example, Saint Athanasius, who we usually read around Christmas because the most famous thing he wrote was on the Incarnation, talking about what does it mean that God came in Jesus. But he also wrote in another sermon, he said the true God by nature is without body, is invisible, is untouchable. And he's talking about God the Father. Another early saint, a guy named Gregory of Nazianzus, said that the word Father is used without this bodily idea. And in fact went on to say that thinking of God as male. God the Father's male. If we do that, what have we done? We're slipping back down into the paganism. That Christianity is supposed to distinguish us from. We're getting back down into Jupiter and Apollo and Neptune. Instead, Father designates a relationship. That the Father is the source. He is the origin of divine life. And so the Son is actually derived from the source. He's not created. The Son has eternally existed. But that's getting into the Nicene Creed. And we're talking about the Apostles' Creed. So maybe you're thinking, okay, but we just... Well, I don't know if I quite buy that because I've actually read (laughs) part of the Bible. I've, I've read the Hebrew Scriptures. I've read the Old Testament. And it seems that this God who Jesus prays to and calls Father, He seems sometimes to fly off the handle smite people? That's a good Old Testament word. Even His own people? And Jesus says we should trust Him? Is He reliable? Is He stable? Well, let's consider that passage that we heard read earlier from Exodus 32. Just to kind of give a brief flyby on that. Remember, Moses was up on the mountain with God and it's taking a long time for Him to come down. So Israel... People of God, who you will remember, who had just been freed from slavery in Egypt, they decide, well, we're going to make do with a golden calf and we'll call it Yahweh. But even in the passage we read, they attribute it to multiple gods. And so they literally take stuff they were wearing and apparently everyone wore earrings and necklaces and things like that. And they make a calf and they worship that calf as the place where the gods they're now worshiping dwell Now look that's real wish fulfillment they didn't need to read sigmund freud to start projecting about what god is like that's exactly what they did and what's the response well the lord is angry and even kind of toward the end of the passage there's something like a riot and some other stuff that's going on where 3 3000 people are eventually struck down and it seems like moses seems to have to kind of talk god off of a ledge From scrapping this whole project called Israel and starting over? Seems like Moses, right, is the the rational one, the sane one. Seems like God, Yahweh, is more like Zeus or Jupiter than the father that Jesus is talking about. Or is it? You see, I think what Moses understood was that there's a difference between a God who could do whatever he liked, damn the consequences... And the God who had shown himself to them as a God of commitment and forgiveness. He understood that there was a sense in which God was ready to be argued with, ready to be recalled to his true nature by those who really understood him. And Moses says spoke with God face to face. He understood that there was something about God that was like a good parent. And that's actually what God was doing there. He coaxed Moses to remember, who do you think I am? I am who I am. I am the one who has pledged myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I promise to be God, and I will be God. But Moses, will you trust me? Or like Israel, do you want me to be like the other gods too? And so this stuff going on in Exodus 32 invites us to consider a little bit of that fantasy that we've been talking about. What would you do with the disastrous stupidity of people in Israel, in the desert, especially after they had just been delivered from Egypt? If you're like me, and I think you probably are, you'd be tempted at least to consider, let's wipe them out. Let's just completely destroy them. But you see, that's the difference between you and I and God. The difference between God and the false gods. Moses remembers the good news of God's promise and speaks it to God, but also speaks it out loud to himself. Who is this God we're following? Is he random? Is he like the Canaanite gods? No, he is a father to his children. And instead, the father of Jesus shows us the unlimited power, and this is important, to be patient, to be there, to be faithful for a world that is deeply unstable, deeply unjust, deeply suspicious, and even uncooperative. The Father shows us the power to go on trying to get through at all costs, laboring, and even wrestling with His children. Archbishop Rowan Williams says this, This is why trusting God the Father is so different than wish fulfillment and projection about some all-powerful character who can just do what he decides and get what he wants straight away. It is the discovery of Moses that God is a God who never runs out of love and liberty. That he is something like a father. God is, in fact, to be trusted as we would trust a loving parent. Whose commitment to us is inexhaustible, whose purposes for us are unfailingly generous, someone whose life is the source of our life and who guarantees that there is always a home for us. So I'd suggest maybe we can just park this idea of this fantasy, this Freudian fantasy of an all powerful and vengeful father for a minute, because what we have instead revealed by Christ is a, a more powerful heavenly father. So that's the first point. God the Father is a stable parent. Here's the second point. Get a drink here. Second one is this. Jesus relates to God as His own Father and invites His own followers to share in that same relationship. See, Jesus does something that is unique in the history of Israel. He calls God, My Father, And then he also invites us to call him my father and your father, for example, in John chapter 20. And we saw that in the Lord's Prayer, that when we go to God, we say, our Father. You see, Jesus' relationship to God is unique, but it's inclusive. It's a wide circle. His followers stand on the inside of Jesus' unique relationship to God. He calls God Abba, Papa. Would, ha- would be how we would best translate that. And now his followers, empowered by the Spirit, are able to pray in the same way. And think about that. We're praying to a person. We're not praying to some power, the universe. We are in a relationship of access and privilege and affection in our prayer. It's something like this. I'm too old to actually remember when uh, Kennedy was president, but I remember seeing these pictures in Life magazine. And whenever Kennedy became president, it was fairly significant because he was this good-looking, young, vibrant leader. He had a beautiful wife, and he also had little children who were now just kind of scampering through the White House. And in Life magazine, there was a series of, of photos uh, of Kennedy in the office um, after he had become, after the inauguration, and there was Kennedy on the phone, talking to world leaders. There were—he was surrounded by other powerful uh, world leaders and national leaders. There was armed Secret Service standing by, just very looking very solemn. And then, the photos started to pop up of his little son, who was about two or three years old, John John. And John John could have been intimidated by leaders, phones, all the business surrounding his dad, but he was just. Completely blasé. He just strolled past the armed so, uh, uh, security detail. He strolled past senators and vice presidents. And he was just goading President Kennedy to play with him. To respond to him. And so they showed pictures and just kind of as it moved through the, this response. That Kennedy pretty soon turned his attention from talking to these world leaders. To actually engaging with the son. And then pretty soon he's down there on the ground with him. You see, no other child, except for his sister, of course, would have been able to capture the attention of the most powerful man in the world like that, unless he just had this access in this relationship. So how much more then do we have that because of Jesus? We are called his brothers and God, our father. You see, we speak to God and God listens to us as if we were Jesus. And that's not theological sleight of hand. That is the Bible. That is the revelation of God saying that. You see, Jesus is God's child by nature, and we become God's children by grace. Jesus is born of God, and we are adopted. But that adoption does not mean we are second class. When we confess that God is Father, it is not some theological idea, but it is a confession of the defining relationship of our lives. We call God Father, Abba. Because that's what Jesus calls God. And because Jesus has invited us to relate to Him in that way. We cry out, Abba, Father, in a position of confidence. Because, like Jesus, we know who it is that we are speaking to faithful, trustworthy, personal. He has rescued us in His mercy and patience. And in fact, He's able to move the levers of the world. Through our prayers. And He allows us to do this and gives us this desire. And He shows His own desire for mercy and equips us with Holy Ghost power. And so that means that, like Jesus and unlike the world, we get to call out to God not to curse those who are enemies, but to pray for them. That God's kindness and mercy. And his fatherhood would be extended to them, too. Think about some of the last words that Jesus said before he died. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What does it mean to have God as our Father? It means that we get to relate to the world completely in a different way than the world would relate to us and to itself. Because you see, we live in a time and a place where so many in our culture see Christians as full of resentment. That we use religion like a lead pipe just to shame others and to crack them in their theological needs. To have them conform to beliefs that they just don't hold. In fact, we have the privilege Not to coerce people, but to persuade them in prayer. So, you want to know how you apply this? You pray. Would you pray? Would you commit to praying for folks who you consider enemies or outsiders who maybe just tick you off? Maybe it's Muslims, maybe it's Republicans. Maybe it's white people, maybe it's people of color, I don't know. You fill in the blank for that. But that is a full-on godly, child-of-God thing to do. You see, to confess God as Father puts us like children. And you know one of the secrets of the Christian life, it's really not even a secret, we never grow out of the space and the place and the relationship of being children in relation to God. But as children, we are as close as Jesus. We have God's ear in prayer. And we have the privilege to call God to be God for the world with mercy offered through the Son, given by the Spirit. Will you all commit to praying that with me? I'm going to try. And we'll ask God to help. Let's do that now.